Well, we are coming off of Easter last Sunday, and we're going back to the book of Mark. So you can think of this sort of like um, going back in time, um, is that last week you saw the end of the story. And so we're going to go back in time and kind of see how we got there, how we ended up with Jesus on the cross and the resurrection. So one thing that we saw in the last couple of weeks in our series is that um, the disciples promised Jesus when they took the Lord's Supper in the last week that they would never leave him, they would never reject him, they would never run away. And it was just like less than 24 hours later when that exact thing happened, that Jesus was arrested and the disciples all basically rejected him by running away, by disappearing. So that's what we're talking about this morning, right? The, that we might also, in a moment of trial or just actually in our everyday lives, we might reject Jesus. And you would say, I would never reject Jesus just like the disciples would, right? But I think it's easier to do than we think, and I think we actually do it more often than we realize. So that's what we're talking about this morning, specifically how the religious leaders rejected the authority of Jesus and how we might do the same. And so the section that we're entering for the next few weeks, basically all of chapter 12, um, which we'll do over the next few weeks, is just like a series of conflicts, one after another, between Jesus and the religious leaders. And so that's kind of the section that we're in. But I also want to remind you that everything from three weeks ago when Mike Kaiser preached on the triumphal entry, everything from that point to basically the resurrection is in a one-week period. Okay, so we're going to do this over several weeks, so it's going to feel like it's much more spread out. But everything from that week to the resurrection is in one week. And so Mark basically dedicates one-third of his book to that week, right? So the last third is all in this one week. So Mark is saying what happens in this week is very, very important. And so we're going to focus on it as we go through. Um, We are going to start in chapter 11. Um, And it's page 899 if you're looking at the Pew Bible in front of you, um, or if you're following along at home, you can use the YouVersion Bible app, and if you find our event for Sunday morning, then the verses will come up for you. But we're going to read 27 through 33 of chapter 11 first. And it says this, They came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priest and the scribes and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So we're going to look at this and kind of work our way through. But the first thing I think we're going to see here is that our pride rejects God's authority. We see this in the religious leaders. They come to question Jesus Um, This is one of the first times we see all of them together. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, all of them are together. They are now united against Jesus. Um, This is the group that we would, you know, as the Sanhedrin. So if you read that phrase, it's talking about all of these groups together. And they wanted to know why Jesus thought he had authority. 
right? Basically, they're asking, what are your credentials, right? Do you have a badge that shows like your title on it that says you're authorized to do these things? Because if you remember, the last thing that we saw Jesus do um, a few weeks ago was he cleansed the temple, right? He goes in, he throws tables over, he runs people out. And so they're basically asking, who gave you the authority to do stuff in the temple? Because it wasn't us, so it seems like you have some kind of clearance that you're not supposed to have, or you have this fake ID that kind of gets you in to be able to do that. And so from their perspective, it seems like he's doing things that he's not supposed to do. And so I think what was happening here, or this is what was happening, is the religious leaders thought they were in charge, right? They saw themselves as the guardians of religious life. It's our responsibility to make sure that everybody is doing what God wants them to do, and we are in charge of that. And so from their perspective, their question is legitimate because they thought they were responsible for everything that happened in the temple and for worship. And so their thinking was basically, right, we get to decide what happens, we get to judge, we get to determine who does what in the temple. And so nothing gets done in the temple without our permission. We are in charge. But the problem is they were so caught up in being in charge that they didn't realize the person with greater authority who actually gave them their authority was standing right in front of them. Right? It's like if you were doing your job um, and you were kind of going along and, and doing whatever it was and the CEO shows up and he tries, starts trying to tell you what to do and you're like, no, 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 that's not how we do it here. Right? You've missed that the CEO is standing in front of you. Right? Somebody with greater authority is right in front of your face and you're like, no, 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 no. You don't have the authority to tell me what to do. This is how my supervisor tells me to do this, right? That's kind of what's happening in this moment. So we see that they missed it, but we see kind of that they didn't want to admit that Jesus had authority either, which is brought up in Jesus' response in verse 29. It says, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question and then answer me. I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? answer me. And so as usual, Jesus' question in response to the religious leaders is always brilliant, right? It's like the best question you could possibly ask, um, which is great. And so what's happening here is John the Baptist uh, claimed that God was behind him, that he was a messenger sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. So he was following God's command and his call for his life. And John was also wildly popular among the people. In addition to that, John had baptized Jesus. And so that's why John and Jesus' ministries are connected. And so when Jesus gets baptized, we also get the affirmation from God, right? The dove comes down and the voice cries out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so we have all of these confirmations. And so they had two options for their answer right? Was John's ministry from heaven or basically from humans, right? That's how we're going to, heaven or humans, those are our two options. So if they say from heaven, they would basically, the religious leaders would be condemning themselves for rejecting the ministry of John, which they were opposed to during his ministry. So they're basically saying, hey, we were wrong. John really is a prophet from God. They, in addition to that, they would be admitting that Jesus' authority was from God because Jesus and John are connected together. And so they didn't really want to do that. But if they say humans, right, they would be saying that John wasn't sent by God and they would discredit themselves in front of the people because the people considered John a genuine prophet. So they would go against the crowd. So they decide not to answer, 
which is what we saw. And we'll come back to that and a little bit more about why, but I think one of the reasons that they refuse to acknowledge Jesus' authority is because of their pride, right? They were proud of their position. And at this point, if you read enough about the religious leaders, there's kind of a sort of arrogance about them being in charge and being um, over everybody else and that they're following God better than anybody else. And if people could just be like them, then everything would be okay, right? So they liked being in charge maybe a little too much. And so they valued their position and their authority over listening or even being open to listening to Jesus. And I think a lot of times our attitude is kind of exactly the same as the religious leaders, right? I want to be in charge, at least of my life. I know some of you, you don't want to be in charge. That's too much responsibility, right? You don't want to be in charge of other people, but I think you probably want to be in charge of your own life, right? I should get to determine what happens. I should get to determine what to do with my life. What, I, what decisions happen, I should be in control of my life. So when we do that, what we're sort of saying is, right, I can take over. I don't need God or anyone else over me. I've got this covered. I can handle this on my own, right? In our marriages, we might say, well, I've been married 20 years or 40 years. I know how to be married. I've done it this long. I've got this covered. I can do this on my own. I've got it under control. Um, Parenting. I know my kids, I know what they need to do, I love them, I know what's best for them, so I know what they should do, I know how to parent them better than anybody else, right, better than their teachers or anybody else who tells me what we should be doing, I know better than them, I've got this covered. Or for our jobs, I have my plan, I know what kind of job I need, I know what kind of job I want, I know the steps to get there, I know how to get the promotion, I know what to do next, and so I'm going to follow my plan until I get to where I want to go, I've got this covered. Or maybe retirement, right? I've worked hard. I've done my time. I have a plan for retirement. I'm comfortable. I can do whatever I want. This is my time to be able to do whatever I want to do. That's why I prepared for this. Or maybe our spiritual lives. I know what to do. I'm supposed to read my Bible. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to help others. I can do all of those things on my own. I've got that covered. I don't need anybody else. I've got it under control. I think all of those are built on pride, on the idea that we can handle things on our own no matter what it is. And so we all at some level want to prove that we are competent, that we can be successful, that we can do certain things that are in our ability, that we are good at something, that we can succeed in different areas of our lives. But the caution here is sometimes that pride leads us to reject God and his authority in our lives, right? If we're already doing, if we're trying to do everything on our own, then we're basically saying, God, I don't really need you. I've got this covered on my own. I don't need anything from you. And so I think we need to be reminded that everything that we have comes from God. Moment by moment, he gives it to us, right? Our very life comes from God as the creator of life. There are verses that talk about Jesus sustaining the universe, upholding the world by the word of his power. Like he literally is basically the life force within us. So if Jesus, he never does this, thankfully, but if he got distracted, right, and thought about something else, we would all just immediately die because we would no longer be alive. Right, the Bible also talks about giving us our strength, right? the very strength that you have, whether it's 
not as much as you used to have, or it's a lot, um, that also comes from Jesus. He strengthens us. He empowers us to be able to do that. Also, your gifts and talents. We just talked about this the last couple of weeks in our spiritual disciplines class, that your gifts and talents and your time and your money, all of those things are given to you by God. He owns them. He created them. Right? So without Him, you have none of those. We literally could not do anything without Him. And so we need to remember that everything we have is from Him. We cannot do it on our own. We can't. We need Him in all things. But as we keep going, I think we also see that our fear rejects God's authority. This is verses 31 through 33, and we sort of covered some of this, but I want us to I read it again all together. And it says, They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We don't know. So they didn't want to say that Jesus had authority, and they didn't want to go against the crowd. So they said, we don't know. They thought they were in charge, but I think this gives us insight into something bigger that's going on here, right? They thought they were in charge, but it turned out they're not as in charge as they thought. Now, I was looking at this and kind of thinking through this concept, and I ran into a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity, and it kind of talks about this. And so kind of what we're talking about is how how we're not as much ourselves or we're not as much in control of what we do on a moment-to-moment basis as we think we are. And this is what C.S. Lewis says about it. He says, the more, we get, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Christ take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. I am not, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I like to believe. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural men, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike all the great tyrants and conquerors have been, and how gloriously different are the saints. And so what he's arguing is, we aren't truly ourselves as much as we think. We are controlled basically by our upbringing, right? Ever done something or said something exactly like your parents did? And all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, and you're like, oh no, I said I'd never be like them, but I'm exactly, that's exactly what they said to me. That's exactly how they did this. And you're just like, oh no. See, our upbringing is influential of us. Or politically, right? I have to say this or that to agree with the party that I identify with, with the party I support, or our situation, right? I act this way at work, 
I act this way at home. I act this way at church. And so we know we act differently in different situations. So those things are controlling us. And so all of those things combine in us at a given moment. And I think that our fears are also a part of this. Right? And I was thinking about just this concept of fears, and we're going to kind of work through these, but I was, saw a list of like the top fears or whatever, and it's always the same list. Right? People are afraid of um, dark snakes, spiders, enclosed spaces, like all of those heights are on there. That's definitely one of mine, um, for sure. But when I look at the list, most of them are like actually dangerous things. Right? I'm not afraid of snakes because of what they look like. I'm afraid of snakes because they can bite me. Right? It's the danger that comes with them. People would say heights don't really fall in this category. Yes, I understand I'm safe being up high, but it's the fall right? and what happens at the end. That's dangerous. That's why we're afraid of heights. But there's always another one in the top five, and it's fear of public speaking. It's in every list I've ever seen, and I was like, all the other ones are physically dangerous. But fear of public speaking, why is that on the list? Now, outside of me like falling down the stairs while I'm up here, which we've seen happen, right? Those are always viral YouTube videos when a speaker falls off the stage, but that doesn't happen very often. So why is fear of public speaking always in the top list of fears? And I think it's what's happening exactly here with the religious leaders. It's fear of man, right? I don't want to get up on stage and start talking and people realize... I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't want to get up on stage and look foolish in front of a crowd of people. Right? That's fear of man. I'm afraid of what people will think about me. Now, lucky for you guys, some reason I got wired backwards. Um, and so I don't have that fear as much as everybody else. And so, but it's always on the list. This fear of man is always on the list. Right? So we want to do what's right or hard, but we're afraid. Maybe we're afraid of rejection. Right? If I say this thing or if I do this, then I'm going to get rejected or people will judge me. Or if I say what I really think, then I'll be cast out of my friend group or whatever this is. Or I'll be laughed at. Or they'll see the real me if I do this. And so this fear of man controls us. And so we have these fears that keep us from fully embracing God's power and authority in our lives. Right? Maybe it's fear of failure. If I try this, I'm going to fail and I'll look foolish. Or it's fear of losing comfort. I like the way that my life is. I like how things are going. If I step out or if I try this or I do something different, then it won't be as comfortable. It won't be what I like. Or maybe being let down. Maybe you want to live more fully for Christ or to talk to your neighbor across the street about the gospel or to do something he's asking you to do to serve him. But you're afraid if you do it that God will let you down, that he won't be there with you, that you'll end up feeling like you're on your own and that he has abandoned you. And so we fear being let down, even by God. Or maybe upsetting somebody. If I say this or I do this, then I'm going to upset somebody. And so we don't do it out of fear. And I thought about that one for a minute, and I know some of you well enough to know that you're not afraid to say upsetting things to people in a certain situation. So there are things that we know are important enough to upset someone, right? But is following Christ or sharing the gospel or being truthful in love part of that package? 
And so the question I really want us to ask in this realm, just talking about all of these things together, of how all of these things actually rule us is, what is ruling you in the moment? Right? We think we're ourselves. We think we are choosing what we want to do. Right? But we are being ruled by all of these things, all of these fears, all of these doubts, our upbringing, all of these things that combine in us. And so if we are on our own, then what we are actually ruled by all of these things together. So how do we break through that? Right? How do we break through so we're not controlled as much by all of those things? And C.S. Lewis kind of alludes to this in what he said. But the only way to sever the hold of those things, of those fears or those doubts or the hesitancy, is to have something stronger than them that can overcome them. Right? And what we would say is, Jesus is the thing that overcomes those. That as we trust in him, as we give our lives over to him, then the hold of those things become less. Right? We're not as worried about looking foolish because we are secure in Christ and we know that we are loved no matter what we do. No matter how, many, how what we look or what other people think about us. Jesus loves us and he died for us no matter what. Right? He severs the hold of those fears and even sometimes the hold of things of the past. Right? Some people understand like the, the generational curse or this thing that kind of happens to our families over and over from generation to generation. God can help us break through those so that we can break the cycle. Right? Whatever that is, whether it's addiction or it's passive aggressiveness or whatever it is, right? all of those things, Christ can break through those as we give our lives over to him because he can sever the hold. And that's what C.S. Lewis is talking about. As we do that, we actually become who we were truly supposed to be in Christ. Right? Before that, we think we are, but we're actually ruled by all of these other things. And so as we sever the hold on those, we can truly become ourselves. As we overcome the fear, right? which is what motivated the religious leaders, they didn't want to say what they really thought because of the fear of the crowd. So even though they thought they were in charge, they were ruled by their fear. And so as we trust in Christ, we can overcome our fears in similar situations and trust in him. And so last, as we kind of get to the, the second half of this, we're going to see that the rejected one has God's authority. And for this, we're going to start in um, chapter 12, verse 1. <clears throat> and so Jesus... Get, just to make it really clear what he's talking about, that he is challenging the religious leaders, um, he's going to tell them a parable, just to make it crystal clear that he is indeed talking about them and challenging them and their authority. And so we're going to read this just a few verses at a time. And so verse, chapter 12, verse 1, says, He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it. He dug a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. And then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. Now, when Jesus speaks in parables, he isn't just making things up. Um, he usually uses a situation that was common around that time. Um, and he kind of builds on it and creates this story. Um, he's doing the same exact thing here. We know this for a couple of reasons. Um, this was a common situation in this time that a wealthy landowner would buy some land, he would plant all everything that was there in the crops, and then he would go back to where he, went, he lived, 
And then he would lease it to tenants, and the agreement was, hey, you pay me a portion of what comes out of the crops as rent. You send it to me. You can live here. You can work the crops. I'll pay you, all that kind of thing. So it was kind of this trade-off. So that's the situation that we're looking at here. The second thing Jesus is doing here is he's connecting this parable to the history of Israel and the religious leaders. And keep in mind, he's talking to these religious leaders who would be well-schooled in the Old Testament and the prophets. And so he's connecting this to the book of Isaiah in chapter 5. This is what um, chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says. Um, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, he cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there, and he expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. And so Jesus is connecting this parable to Isaiah 5 just to make it crystal clear to the religious leaders. And so Jesus isn't choosing just a random illustration. Oh, I think it would be good to use this one here. He is doing this intentionally because of all the connections that we're going to see as we go through. And then we pick it up in verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head, and they treated him shamefully. And then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat, and others they killed. And so the owner sends his servants to collect his portion of the crop as his reward as the owner but the servants don't treat them, the tenants don't treat the servants well. And it escalates from beating and sending them back to hitting them on the head to killing them, right? It escalates very quickly. They were treated badly. And Jesus here, I think, is intentionally calling them servants as a connection to Israel's history without, throughout the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament prophets are referred to as servants in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 7, um, since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. Um, in Zechariah 1.6, but my words and my statutes that I commanded my servants, the prophets, um, overtake your ancestors. And so he's saying, look, there's another connection. These servants who I'm sending you, think of them like the prophets who are giving you this message. Then in verse 6, Right? He still had one to send, a beloved son. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. And so finally, the owner sends his son thinking they will respect him. He's my son, he's my heir, he's a direct link to my authority, to my ownership. Surely they're going to listen to him. But the tenants have a different idea. Right? They think because it's the son, and some of the commentaries that I read about this, they try to give the tenants like a break, um, which may be true, right? Because if the, the son is coming, maybe because the real owner has died. Right? And so if the owner is dead, that leaves the son. And if we kill the son, then we get the land. Because if there's no relative around, then whoever's living there, 
right? It's a whole squatter's rights situation. Um, if they're already there, then they get to keep it. So some of their thinking may have been, the owners died, that's why he sent the son, so if we kill the son, then we get to keep it, right? It belongs to us. And so here's the end of the Isaiah passage, just to kind of partner these two back together. And I think this makes it really clear that Jesus is talking about the religious leaders in this parable. This is verse 5 of Isaiah 5. Now I will tell you what I'm about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns or briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. And so in Isaiah, the vineyard is Israel, who failed to produce fruit and is judged by God. Now because of their unrighteousness, If you look at Israel's history, what he's referring to is when God kind of removed his protection from them and the Assyrians came in and conquered them and led them off to exile. Now in Mark, the vineyard is Israel. And Jesus adds the tenants who are the religious leaders. And it shifts from being unfruitful to being unfaithful. Right? The caretakers of the vineyard have been unfaithful to the owner. Just as the religious leaders are being unfaithful to God, they have rejected the message of the prophets, sent by God to warn them, to call them to obedience, and now they are rejecting the Son, the beloved Son and heir. And then we get to verse 9. Now, verse 9 is kind of the the gotcha moment. If you're familiar with the story of David, um, David does something he shouldn't do with somebody else's wife. Um, she ends up getting pregnant, and then the prophet Nathan kind of comes and tells him this story about this rich guy who had all these sheep, but instead of taking all of these sheep, he went and got a sheep from a poor guy who kind of had one lamb, and he treated it like his pet. And the rich guy went and took the sheep from the poor guy, and they used it to eat dinner. And at this point, David's like, well, we got to go get that guy, right? That guy, who, the rich guy who took the sheep from that poor guy, we got to go get him. And Nathan's like, you are that man. You are the rich man who took something from the poor man. Now, this is the same kind of thing that Jesus is doing right here, right? Because he asks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? They were tenants. They had this responsibility. They were supposed to send a portion to the owner. He sent his servants to collect. They rejected him. They killed him. He sent his son to collect. They rejected him and they killed him. What should we do about these tenants? Right? And anybody who's listening to the story will immediately say, they need to be punished. Right? They've got to be out of here. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They have not done what they have agreed to do. So their, ju- their judgment of the tenants was deserved and should be complete. Right? Completely done away with. And it's this point the religious leaders realize that he's really talking about them, right? That they have rejected, they have ignored, they have cast out, and now the Son is standing before them. And they are rejecting him as well. 
And so we see a couple of things in this. One, we see that the unfaithful tenants who reject the son will suffer the consequences, right? It's not, it doesn't end well for them, right? Which is the answer. He will come and he will kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. They will suffer the consequences of their rejection of the servants and of the son, right? And the same is true for us, right? For those who reject God, who reject Jesus, they will suffer the consequences. It does not end well for them. But secondly, we see also in this the grace and the patient love of God, who is the owner in this parable, who continuously sends servants and messengers over and over and over again to try to get the attention of the tenants who aren't listening, who have rejected him who don't want to submit to the owner. Right? He sends them again and again and again and again. Just like the Old Testament prophets who were beaten, who were killed, who were cast out. But God kept pursuing his people, those who had come to know him. And eventually he sends his son right, to those same people who killed all of his servants and treated them badly. He doesn't give up and say, well, I sent him all of these opportunities to believe in me and to trust in me and to do the right thing, but they didn't do it, so we'll just leave them on their own. That's not what the loving, gracious God does. He says exactly the same thing as the owner, but I still have my son, and I'll send my son, and maybe they will listen to him. Maybe they will trust in him. Maybe they will believe in him. And so, yes, it is about the religious leaders rejecting the authority of Jesus and not seeing him for true who he really was. But in this parable, we also see the flip side, that God lovingly and graciously pursues us again and again and again. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity to come to faith in him, to believe in him, to trust in what he's done for us on the cross. And even after that, even after we become believers, he continues to pursue us when we fall away, when we let our fears lead us to do things that we know we're not supposed to do. We will let those things control us more than being controlled by him. He continues to pursue us and to restore us and to make us whole, to make us who we were supposed to be. So he rescues us even in that situation. And then we get to verse 12, right? They were looking for a way to arrest him, but again, similar thing, they feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and they went away. So ironically, when the religious leaders hear the parable, They understand that he's talking about them and that they are going to be judged for what they are doing. And they are probably rejecting Jesus as the Son of God. But they don't change their minds. Right? They don't go, oh yeah, you got us. We see it now. You're the Son. Our bad. You can continue to do what you're doing. We're behind you. We support you. No. They don't do that. They just leave. But why do they reject him? Right? What is behind what they're doing? And I think one of them is, right? He didn't have their permission. Jesus didn't have my permission to do that in the temple. Right? So 
what does Jesus not have permission to do in your life? Right? He challenged the status quo. Well, Jesus isn't doing things like we've always done them, so I don't really like that. Right? And then he also pointed out their hypocrisy. Right? You say that you're these great religious leaders, but you've, you're missing out what God really intended with all of these laws. And so they rejected him because of those things. But the good news is, right, if you're just reading the parable and it ends there, even with Jesus standing in front of you, it's only, like, good because the tenants are going to get what's coming to them, right? But we have the benefit, obviously, of being forward in history, so we know what's coming, right? But for the people there, the story of the son isn't over at the end of the parable when he gets killed and cast out. Jesus continues Right, to show them what it is. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. And it says, Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. See, this stone or the sun that was rejected by the religious leaders will be killed and cast out. But that's not the end. The Son will become the cornerstone. He will become the most important piece, the most important stone in the foundation of Christianity. <clears throat> See, the religious leaders saw him as unworthy, as a criminal, as a troublemaker. And in their judgment, they decided that Jesus was to be rejected. And Jesus is pretty clear, if we connect all of these dots, that he is talking to the religious leaders and one of the ways we also know this is from where this verse comes from, right? This verse about the stone being rejected is from Psalm 118, and it's almost an exact quote. Verse 22, the stone that the builders, has, builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord. It is wondrous in our sight. Now, I don't remember if Mike referenced this and where the, the shouting when Jesus was coming in on the triumphal entry came from. But it was also from Psalm 118, verse 25, just a couple of verses down. Lord, save us, which is what we would hear when we say here, Hosanna. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. So just right before this, from this same exact psalm, when Jesus enters the city, they scream, save us, rescue us. The one who comes in the name of the Lord will be blessed sort of saying, we understand who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And then he uses the same psalm to say, you guys have rejected me. You know who I am. You've seen enough to trust in me, but you've rejected. But the rejected one will become the cornerstone. He will be the crucial one in our faith that everything is built on. Right As he comes back from the death, and taking the punishment for our sins and rescuing us, he changes everything, right? And the real us, the true us, that can sever all of those things can be built on this cornerstone. We can be truly ourselves. We can be truly a church, a body of believers who serve Christ. And so the question as we kind of come to the end of this is, how do we see Jesus? Do we see as, as somebody who's coming to take away our lives, to take away our plans, to take away our control? 
Do we see God as a God who sits on the sidelines and he watches, but he doesn't intervene and help us? Or do we see him as the one who has come to save us? The one who was rejected by men in order to rescue us. Who was beaten and killed and cast out on my behalf for my good. On your behalf for your good. He endured all of that for us. So how do we receive Jesus? Do we reject him? like the religious leaders did, and say, well, I don't want to give him that much control, and I don't really know what he's going to do, so I'm not really going to follow him. Or are we going to see and trust in what he has done for us as he renews us? So just cautions this week as you kind of think about this of how we may have rejected God's authority. Right? Because I think we would all say, just like the disciples did in the garden or in the Lord's Supper, I'm not going to reject Jesus. I'm not going to turn away from him. I'm going to follow him. But we do that when we think we can do it on our own. Right? I've got this covered. I know what to do. I'm following the steps. I'm getting where I want to go. When we let our fears rule us over trusting in God, right? we're basically rejecting him and his ways for us. Or we're rejecting his plan over our plans. Those are the ways I think we most likely are rejecting God's authority in our lives in those situations. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, we come before you, and it, it feels to me like a time of, um, of confession, of just saying, God, I, I fail so many times. I reject you in ways that I don't even sometimes realize because I'm afraid and I'm doubting and I'm controlled by just all of the things that are in my history and in my past and in my upbringing. So God, I pray this morning that you would help us to see you, that you would help us to trust in you, that you'd help us to free us from those things, from our fears and our doubts, those things that hold us back from becoming who you've truly created us to be. And that we would examine ourselves to see how we are following you, how we are trusting in you, and what is really ruling us on a day-to-day or a moment-to-moment basis. And that when we see the places where we're off, that we will lead us to confess, to repent, to turn, to follow you to turn back to seeking you, to turn back to being led by you, to turn back to you to conquer our fears and our doubts and all of the other things that sometimes hold us back. So God, we pray that we will trust in you above all things, that we will fear you and worship you and praise you and trust in you above all things. In your name I pray, amen.